Today's episode of Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is brought to you by Omeo. Are you ready to travel again? You got to book that, right? And Omeo is a travel booking platform that makes planning a journey in Europe or North America pretty darn easy. You just enter some details about your travel, and then Omeo magically gives you all of the train, bus, flight, and ferry options for your journey. It's it's like magic. It's never been simpler, and let me tell you, if there was ever a time to have some help booking travel um, my guess is that you needed it. Got a text from a buddy today, and he said, hey, let me get back to you on that thing that you texted me about because I am at Bush Gardens. Thank God. <laughs> if your enthusiasm is similar, OBO is going to help make the dream a reality. Uh, they want you to leave your house this summer. 5% off your next booking. Just head to omeo.com and use the code LISTENER5 at checkout. LISTENER5. Valid until June 30th for new users on all modes of transport. Uh, let me tell you, it's just the pick-me-up you're going to need for 2021. Omeo, plan, book, and love the journey. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, you awake? Yeah. I just want you to know I hate you. So is my dad. Please go away. Let me sleep for the love of God! Why don't you tell me a story? How do you sleep at night? I don't want to hang out with a bunch of wannabe corporate sellouts. It's Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories, your favorite podcast. Uh, what's up? Bedheads. My name is Brian. My co-host is Murdoch. We talk about rock and roll rumor and innuendo and set the record straight. And we are joined today by a couple guys who do something very, very similar. And they've just released it as a book. Welcome to the show, Tom Bajor and Richard Beanstock. Well, thank yeah, you for having us. So before we get into everything, I want to tell everybody, Rich and Tom have a book called Nothing But a Good Time. Uh, and it has uh, been the light of my life for the, the last couple of weeks or whatever. It's the uncensored, uncensored history of 80s hard rock explosion. It's a first person, like it's all first person. So you're just having the whole conversation. So Blackie Lawless is talking about throwing the meat at the girl in the cage. Is um, the technical term oral history, fellas? Yes. yes. Okay. Like, how many spreadsheets do you have? Like, how do you put these conversations, these independent conversations yeah. together in a format like this? Oddly, you know what? I can tell you the truth, at least on my end, there were no spreadsheets. Like, we just we just went and did, like, 200 interviews. Yeah. <laughs> and, then, and, and somehow, because of our interest in this topic, I can't remember anything. Like, I, I really can't remember anything. Um, I could tell you what was in my, my brain. I don't know, Rich, was it the same with you? I could remember pretty much what was in every interview. I, I mean, I, I think so. And, and I would agree, like my brain doesn't really hold much else in the way of information, certainly not important information, but this stuff for some reason. And like, yeah, there, there were absolutely zero spreadsheets or anything like that. I think because neither of us really... <laughs> consider ourselves professional in that way like we just kind of we really did just go out and do it i think i had one like word doc that literally just said dudes we have talked to and like yeah. and just listed and just started listing them every time we talked to somebody and like it's it's relatively accurate probably not fully but like that was kind of what it was i mean the list of people you talk to is really impressive like there's like yeah. not really anybody where i was like oh man they clearly didn't get this guy like you got everybody and i have to say up top that one of the founding godfathers unofficially of this podcast who we've not had on we should totally reach out to is is, is lawn friend like we but we came together reading his book life on planet rock like that was early on in our relationship we both read that book and, and talked about it all the time and so he doesn't really show up until the end but i texted murdoch when i got to that part of the book and i was like dude lawn friends coming but i mean you guys talked to you talked to 
everybody from, you know, CeCe DeVille and Brett Michaels to, you know, Slash and, and like the big names and then all the folks who were kind of behind the scenes and all the folks in the, in the smaller bands. And it was yeah. a blast to hear all these perspectives. How long did it take to compile, like when you started the interviews to like when you started, like, you know, dumping this to an editor or, or whatever? And like, that's my first question. So how long did that take? The first official interview, I had it on my calendar because it actually happened to be like uh, my birthday was March 7th. I did JJ French of Twisted Sister, March 13th, 2017. So and that was so it took about a year of us working before we got a book deal to assemble. a sample, a couple sample chapters and write an introduction and then shop the book. And then it was another two and a half years after that. We actually handed in the book. Um, the first draft went in like Thanksgiving of 19. That was the first draft. And then we had to do a bunch of other work. So, but it, it, it was a sol- it was four years, you know, but from, from soup to nuts, four years and five years of talking about whether we should subject ourselves to that before that. How did you get Vito Brada from White Lion? Where did you find him? And, and did you just know his agent? Or did <laughs> how, how did you find a guy that, like for a, for a guy like me, like is a, a guitar guy, a metal guy? Look, I'm 50. And so I was a metal kid growing up. I was also into a lot of indie stuff. But like Vita, I was lo- the guitar playing of the 80s is really what captured my imagination. And I thought Vito was like one of the best, like the melodicism and everything. And um, I've said this jokingly, but it's kind of true. The book may have been a pretext to interview Vito Brada, like the whole, pro- <laughs> the whole project. Um, and it was incredible. Like we, we each had different, we each took different bands when we were writing the book, like, like, and tried to sort of, do if we had to fill in one of us would do an interview of a guy it wasn't totally exclusive but like Vito Brado and White Lion was sort of my beat because I'm obsessed with them we have different buckets of obsession Rich and I um and I was just it was not as hard as you think but it was incredibly lucky like I basically emailed Eddie Trunk uh, the the serious DJ and I've known him. I used to be the editor in chief of Revolver magazine, yeah, for like ten cool. years. So 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 I've known him, you know, a, a little bit enough to email him, and um, I just kind of threw him myself at his mercy. I was like, dude, and he's the last person who interviewed Eddie uh, uh, Vito Brada like ten years ago. That's the last Vito Brada interview before the one we did for this book. And I was just like, is there any way you can get an email to Vito Brada, please? And he, look, he made the introduction. Uh, He sent an email to Vito. And I don't know, like, if it just landed on the right day, if it, you know, like how it happened. But Vito answered. He's like, I'll do it. And um, it ended up being, like, I ended up talking to Vito two consecutive days it was like three and a half hours of of interview because i was like once i got this i wasn't gonna let go right um and he really i mean he so for me it was a major major thing and i think 
what the case is with a lot of these guys is, you know, look, I could have gotten on the phone with them and if you had detected that I was snooty or dismissive or whatever, it could have been a 15 minute interview. But I clearly like I think he was able to detect that I was completely aware of his oeuvre, as they say, and like and like all in like there was no like I approached Vito Brada with total deference and adulation. Um, And then he's gone back underground like that dude, you know, is not. He lives at home with his mom in Staten Island. I I mean, if she's still I spoke to him two years ago. And he's, he does not play electric guitar anymore. Uh, he, like, blew out his hand. He's got, like, a nylon string guitar. But, like, that dude, he's not. People are like, do you think he's going to come and do another record? He's like, no, that, he's done. Like, he's one of the people sort of jumping to the end of the story of the book in a weird way that I think the uh, sort of repu- cultural repudiation of his type of guitar playing that happened in the 90s really completely blew his mind you know he does he has a quote in the book where he's like you know somebody came up to me and said you know what your problem is you play guitar too well and and, and i think like <laughs> and he's like what was i supposed to do with that and i think that really just broke him yeah. you know um yeah it broke wow. other people but i i think he was just like you know what i wrote the, i wrote when the children cry i've got some like i've got some money coming in i made some good investments i'm i'm out yeah. but he was wonderful and funny and like clear headed and just it was a total highlight of the book. That was a long wow. answer to your short question. Yeah, I'm, I'm just I'm fa- like it was interesting in the book where you mentioned how people would come up to him and be like, oh, man, that guitar solo on weight, man, are you gonna, I, that's I really yeah. like that. And I remember thinking, I guess I liked the guitar solo on weight, but I was more like kind of obsessed with his tone and his sound. And like now I'd be like. Oh, what pedals were you using? You know, it's like I, you know, I never got, I think I, I've, you know, I've just watched videos. I never got to see them in person. Um, right. And always, I've loved that band. So, uh, Brian, do you want to get, get Tom and I off White Lion? Because we could do this for another uh, well, 45 I, minutes. So, this could be like 90 minutes. Yeah. yeah I, one thing we want to do, you know, we, we really talk about a lot of times on the show, a specific rumor or, or story and i know you guys now I, I like reading this i was like there's 27 episodes within this book that we could do you know um but one i wanted to talk about that we you spent a lot of time on in the book is is this uh kind of a rivalry between poison and guns and roses but all centered around this idea that i had heard before but had forgotten that is it true that slash actually auditioned to be in poison before he was in guns and roses well so, yeah i mean he that is 100 true i think that you know, it's interesting, and that's a story that's come out a little bit over the years. I think Slash first went into it, really, when he did his book, uh, probably like 10 years ago or something. Um, but it's it's a totally, like, mind-blowing thing. And I had actually, I, I mean, I've, I've interviewed Slash a bunch throughout my career, and I had interviewed him before all of that. I think it was, like, the 20th anniversary of Appetite for Destruction. Um so like 2007 uh and we went through sort of all the prehistory and he told me that whole story and that was the first time i had ever heard it and i remember it was just completely mind-blowing because not only had he tried out for poison but he also didn't really have anything bad to say about it you know like you would think that he might because of how sort of opposite 
those bands are even though they worked in the same world but he was just like you know he's like i learned the songs he's like i played the shit out of the songs he's like they they made the right choice you know he wasn't like clearly he's not bitter that cc deville got the job you know like right. slash did okay for himself but he's like i walked in in my moccasins and like how i am and cc walked by like looking like cc and he's like and he knew that that would be the guy um and so, you know, the story has been told a little bit over the years, like Brett has sort of talked about it a little bit. Brett obviously talks about it in our book, how he he claims he actually wanted Slash, but it was the other guys in the band that all wanted CC. Um, so he 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 relented. But I think also what was new for us and probably for anyone else reading the book, hopefully, was to get insight from a bunch of other people. So like you have Slash and Brett talking about it. And they're sort of stating what we have heard in different ways. But then you also like Ricky Rocket talks about it a lot from his perspective. And then like and you have these other guys that were actually there, like uh, Chris Weber, who was in the pre Guns N' Roses band, Hollywood Rose, talks about how, oh, yeah, I tried out for that spot, too, you know, like and it was sort of this thing that in that scene at that time, like that was the hot gig. You know, we actually I mean, Tom talks about tracking down Vito Brado, which was incredibly impressive. The thing that I was most impressed about was that he tracked down Matt Smith, the original Poison guitarist. And I mean, that was an exciting moment when he made that connection. And Matt Smith is another guy who, you know, he was leaving the band, but he was actually still around at that time when the, um, when the tryouts were going on. So like to, we have his perspective as well, which is not something that I don't think has ever been heard. And then Tracy Guns, who was who kind of hooked up a few of those um, auditions because he was friends with the Poison guys. He was friends with Matt, Matt Smith. Obviously, he knew Slash. So, like, it's it's this cool thing that beyond the, the sort of, you know, the event itself, which is totally weird to think of Slash jamming <laughs> yeah, yeah. with Poison, um, you also see that it, it was actually just a big community moment in that world well and this is what you guys do um, so well funny. yeah you do so well with this in the book of like untangling the guns and roses and well the, the strip in general but but specifically i the, all this history around guns and roses and how they were all these different musicians from different bands who eventually kind of come together and i had never realized that the name actually came from tracy guns and axel rose gigging together like one time and then in, in pluralizing rows it was going to be guns and rows and i that was i was like oh my god that's where that name came from it's you know now such an iconic thing i didn't know that cc cc auditioned for striper yes mm-hmm. that that's fucking weird so imagine <laughs> imagine if they were really in stage costumes and cc like that's not how the audition went but you know the the outfits were kind of that's what killed it right I mean, yeah. I don't even, right? CC didn't, was like not into painting his guitar yellow. And that's really yeah. what it was, and right? Black, like he basically. just didn't want to paint I think paint he it. says he liked pink and blue or something. Yeah. And like, and that was enough yeah. to, you know, yeah. it doesn't work. But like going back to the, the Poison audition, it's weird because after the book was done and I wish that I had um, known this before, like going to what Rich was saying about what a big deal it was. Uh, I'm friends with this guy who is um, Mike Hickey, who's currently his job, his day job is he's Joe Bonamassa's guitar tech. (laughs) But he was in Venom Uh, back in the day. But before he joined Venom, 
he he was in L.A. at the time, and he auditioned for Poison. Oh, it's so great. And he told me, like, a really... And it's weird, because I really wish this was in the book, so you're getting bonus material here. It's kind of, like, really vivid. He was like, yeah, I went to their... You know, we described this horrible warehouse that Poison lived in, right. with the flying cockroaches, and, and so they they really lived in squalor at this point. And Mike Kiki went there, and the audition, like, he didn't make it to the rehearsal room, but the audition consisted of showing up so they could see what you looked like, and showing them some pictures, and apparently they did his hair there to see, like, what he, how he would oh, clean up. Right on. And then he played them, like, some demos of him shredding, and I guess he didn't get to the next step but that was part of a, it was a big i mean they were selling out the country club so for for somebody like you know and that's the interesting thing you see about slash in the book is he's really until he lands in this thing he's really kind of floundering trying to find a gig you know we think of him as well he's he's always been the, the guitar player in guns and roses and he's an icon but you know he was in this band black where he replaced Paul Gilbert, who ends up in Mr. Big. Duff hooks up with them and is like, I'm not playing with this dude. He doesn't have a singer. He's like just jamming in his basement. Yeah, like yeah. It, did, Slash, it took Slash a while to get something going. You know, it wasn't like it just came out of like heaven that he was the Guns N' Roses guitar. Well, one of my favorite things about the book, too, is the amount of times you get different people to say, then we went back to my grandma's house. Like th- that is in the book so often. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, um, it's fine. Actually, a lot of shit goes down at Tracy Guns's grandmother's house. <laughs> totally, I'm not kidding. Um, you know, like Izzy's living there for a while and crashed on the couch, and like you know, his mom or is asking if like Izzy is like into heroin, and, and Tracy's like, no, he's just kind of you know, he's just reading books about it, and like <laughs> you know, but it also it makes you realize like how young these guys are you know like they are really they're kids when when all this is happening um and a lot of times they're kids once they hit big but certainly at this stage um you know and it's wild and even tracy like i think he's hanging out with izzy at his house and he's trying to think of a name for his band and like izzy has hollywood rose so tracy's like la guns you know and like and you see like that's how that stuff happens um and it's just so casual and we've all sort of been there when you're doing your own garage band and just kind of figuring stuff out and like that's the same thing that these guys were doing you know and like there's sort of similar to this it's like when we were talking about slash there's a one scene early in the book where i think slash had just started road crew and he he creates this flyer for like they do a show at um some studio some rehearsal studio it's like road crew and some band that has like some of the guys from like early warrant like josh lewis um his early band then i think tracy's playing there as well with one of his bands and josh lewis is like you know you look at that night and it's like you have members of guns and roses warrant and la guns all playing a gig together he's like we all still had braces you know like we were just we were just (laughs) high school kids at that time and like you know charging a buck to come into this rehearsal studio but like that's how close a lot of these guys were and that's how like far back they go um and it's wild to to hear those experiences a lot of these things that we ask people about they barely remembered them and then when you sort of jog their memory they're like holy shit like that's incredible well, and the the cool advantage of a oral history, the other thing I loved, besides Grandma's house being mentioned so often, is the times that you would also get this phrase, 
I don't remember that. <laughs> so like somebody would just tell you a whole story and then it would be like, you'd go to the next person and they'd be like, I yeah, I don't think that's true. My, my <laughs> other, my other favorite thing in your book, like this is my youth. So I grew up with all this music was when there's the person that's not in the band that says, yeah, they were awful. <laughs> I, yeah, they were terrible. And it's like, wait, you know, well, I mean, I, I was after after so many years, I think I got dismissive of poison. Right. And then one night at like two o'clock in the morning, I was reading the book and I, you'll attribute the quote for me because you guys wrote the book. But I I I like out of a stump, like stupor, I went over and wrote down talk dirty to me is personality crisis. And it changed everything for me for CC and it changed everything for me for poison because I'd never, I just, just thought that they were, you know, I mean, it just seems so glammed up and ridiculous and I didn't understand the cover and the cover had, there was a reason the cover looked like that. And you guys, your book, your book points out all those things and it really gave me a deeper appreciation for poison than I, I think I did when I actually really liked poison when I was like 12 or 13. Well, and one of the things I was going to bring up around that is the difference, you know, when we're talking about poison versus Guns and Roses and slash auditioning for poison, part of that cognitive dissonance is wrapped up in this idea that we do think of poison as the show and Guns and Roses as, as being really talented. And that comes up in the book a lot, right? Like even later at the end, when you're talking about what happens in the early 90s, as, as people walk away from that music for a little while... And, you know, people keep saying in the book, like, but Guns N' Roses was so good and Slash was such a good guitar player. And you have all of these other parts earlier where people are just like ripping on how bad Poison was and how it was all about being in the room with them and how what a party they were. But in terms of and there were so many times in the in the book, too, where you got people to basically say, like, I went and heard this band in the the bass player doesn't know how to play bass. It's very clear that, you know, some of these musicians have heard about what's happening on the Sunset Strip, have come to try to make it and actually don't really know what they're doing. Something that holds true in the book is like these bands that we now know, the reason that we're talking about them is that somehow they manage through perseverance, desperation, and being cutthroat of finding the right combination of people that creates a, a, a band with an energy and a credibility and like a cohesion where you're like, that's a band and I want to be them, you know? And when you watch uh, Poison with their other guitar player, Matt Smith, they're fine. And Matt Smith was a good guitar player, but it's really, it is a like there are demos and it is much more like leaden. And I think something does happen going back to your personality crisis thing. Like I think maybe Ricky was hip to it, but you know, CC brings in that New York, thing of being hip to the dolls like which is not you know being hip to the dolls is not something that a kid who grew up in the 70s in mechanicsburg pa is necessarily going to have you know uh, the, the publicist who worked with poison mitch schneider talks about how when he asked bobby doll the bass player poison what his favorite band was growing up bobby doll says fog hat <laughs> like with zero irony right, so right like, yeah there is cc is bringing in this um this sensibility and the thing with poison is if people do there is this it's like a, a leitmotif in the book or like you know it's like we saw poison and they suck we saw poison and they suck part of that is also i think we didn't realize this till we were doing research and obviously the research led to the title of the book poison actually has of all the bands including motley crew or guns and roses the most actual billboard hit singles like yep. pop singles yep wow. they're the so i think there is also a resentment there that 
despite the fact that they did not have sort of this 80s uh, caliber musicianship that was required, perhaps, that they somehow did write the songs, you know, and become sort of the band besides, or one of the three bands. But there is definitely a, a resentment towards them that is palpable. Hey, quick reminder that today's episode is brought to you by Omeo, a travel booking platform that makes planning a journey in Europe and North America effortless. Enter those travel details, and Omeo is magically going to give you the train, bus, flight, and ferry options that you need for your journey. It's simple, man, and you deserve a real vacation. So make it easy on yourself when you book that thing and use Omeo. 5% off your next booking for new Users, just head to omeo.com and use that code LISTENER5. LISTENER and the number 5 at checkout. Well, yeah. and, and so they weren't good enough, quote, unquote, right? But then there were other bands that were too good to be in the scene. And I love all the stuff with Winger and, and how Kip Winger by the ah. end is like, I can't believe they were making fun of me on Beavis and Butthead, right? And and the whole yeah. idea of him doing ballet in that video shoot uh, or auditioning to get the video and going out and doing ballet, like it's amazing. And it kind of goes back to what you were talking about with Vito of like, at what point are you actually, you know, this I, this idea of like, oh, they're too good to be in the scene. And I saw Winger. Uh, they opened up, it was the Long Cold Winter Tour with Cinderella. So Cinderella, Bullet Boys, and Winger is on the bottom of the bill. And I and it's like I took friends of mine who had never been to a concert before, and like they all remember it. <laughs> and and it's like, and they all walked away going, Winger is fucking awesome. And they were, <laughs> like, everything about it was great. They were kind of the heaviest band on the bill. Like the Bullet Boys have like a thing but they kind of felt like they were the heaviest band on the bill. And, of course, Kip Winger's great looking. The Winger story is is great because it is very particular to them. And, like, it's, it's pretty, it gets pretty ridiculous. But it also, in a lot of sort of broad strokes, is indicative of what happens to a lot of these bands at the end of the, the 80s, which is why we also go so deep into, into them because it, 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 you know, it sort of hits a lot of points. But... Yeah, I mean, as far as them being picked on more than the other bands, I mean, yeah, they were great musicians, all of them. They had a lot of pedigree behind them, you know, whether it's with the Dixie Dregs or studio recording or playing with Alice Cooper, like, you know, whatever. I mean, at the end of the day, though, that doesn't necessarily, and I'm not saying Winger is good or bad, but that doesn't mean that, you know, you're writing good songs and everything else, like, just because you can really play your instrument, right? Uh, which they all could. Uh, you know, as far as them getting singled out, I mean, some of it is just bad luck. Some of it's like, all right, I mean, yeah, he's Kip's doing pirouettes on stage and he's showing his hairy chest. And, you know, they, they have a song called 17, which is, yep. gets talked about in the book as well. Mm -hmm. And Kip is like, I was just playing off of the Beatles, you know, she was just 17. But it's yeah. like, no, it's 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 kind of creepy the way that you're doing it. Um, yeah. So they, kind you know, and then they have the big ballad and, and all that. So they're sort of setting themselves up a little bit like, yeah, I mean, when it comes to Stuart on the, the cartoon on, on Beavis and Butthead, he, he <laughs> easily, you know, he could have been wearing, I don't know, a pretty boy Floyd shirt. He could have been wearing a poison shirt. Like it yeah. just happened yeah. Yeah. that he wore a winger shirt and like that probably is just dumb luck. And then, oh, well, like your career is kind of over. <laughs> like who knew that was going to happen? Mm -hmm. But there are, yeah, there are a lot of bands, you know, and it goes back to what Tom was saying with Vito before. It's like a lot of these guys were just like, 
and rightfully so. They're like they had spent their lives devoted to their craft, whether or not you like their craft. Um, they could play the shit out of their instruments, which is what you would expect from a professional musician, right? I mean, they're at the top, very top, one percent of of guys who can do this kind of thing. And then all of a sudden, like literally overnight, they are all just canceled. And part of the reason they're canceled, you know, is for being too good at their instrument. Yeah. And like Vito said, it's like, what do you do with that? Like, you can't dumb it down and you can't just keep, I mean, you can try that. That's not going to work either. So a lot of these guys, like it, you start to understand beyond just the, you know, whatever the financial implications were of having your career basically axed. Um, it's also this like passion that you've had your whole life and that you've worked for your whole life. And now you're getting the same thing that you were lauded for last year. You are now getting slammed for, which is, you know, how you play your instrument. And like, I don't know how you square that. And a lot of these guys really had a problem doing that. Well, another thing that you mentioned in terms of, of canceling and of, uh, you know, like you just mentioned 17, I, I, I actually thought it was, I, I very commendable that at the beginning of the book, you say like, okay, listen, let's have a talk. Uh, we there's going to be some misogynistic stuff that you are going to read in this book. Let's just get that out on the table and know that the way people thought about these things then and the way we're going to square them in 2021 are going to be a little different. And so it kind of like clears the table so we can go into the full cultural experience. But you do have lots of folks saying like, yeah, man, it was all about the girls. That was just about the girls for me. Not that many. There's really, I mean, what's the level of profanity allowed on this podcast? Why the fuck you want to? Like like you've really got, it's a couple, you know, it's like the, like Tammy Down carries a lot of that in the book. She's just like, I wanted to fuck. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Like whatever he's like, like whatever he's like, like he's like. There is a lot of it, but again, not you know. Look, we don't know because they had learned better. Silver Chair or like Live or yeah, all those yeah, bands, yeah. they might have been out on the road like swashbuckling too. We don't know, <laughs> yes. you know, like. Um, <laughs> I love that you pick silver chair. Like, the, maybe, yeah. yeah. Thank you. That's amazing. And maybe Swash, swashbuckling. Yeah. yeah. Like, I just pictured the like, guy you know. from silver chair with a sword. <laughs> like, I'm sure Sponge were out there swashbuckling. <laughs> For with, sure. With, like, oh, yeah. Um, Sponge. Oh, my God. Know, the thing about this music was that it was also lyrically about partying. Like, yeah. it was right. good time yeah, music. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so. It, but it was definitely a, a lot about the girls. But also, you have to remember that the the girls, women, however, like, are hopefully we're in a safe bubble here, um, were a huge part of the audience. You know, yeah, it wasn't right, yeah. just that it wasn't just that it was a, about seducing girls. It was also it was about well seducing them both, perhaps backstage, but also getting their you know seducing them as an audience. Like that's what power ballads were about. You know, when these bands go out on the road. I think it's Jeff Labar from Cinderella when he's talking about opening for Bon Jovi. I was, I was like, so what was the audience ratio of dudes to chicks? And he's like, um, I think it was like 80, 80, 80% yep. girls. And he's like, well, maybe it was like 60, but it felt like 80. Yeah, 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 you know? yeah, yeah, and, yeah. But that was a very large part of the appeal of this music and like something we don't really get into the into that much in the book. But when you look back, when you really look back at – um the magazines of the era like metal edge and, and 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 stuff the guys in these bands were totally marketed yeah as sex symbols like they were yep. constantly being yep. photographed without their shirts and stuff like that and then ending up on the walls of like probably teenage girls and boys but you know there yeah. was a 
they were they were fully marketed as like beefcake. Yeah. So I'm not yeah, defending we, anything, but it was yeah. just it was a time where sex and hooking up was part of the lyrics and the conversation and the videos and the the whole thing. Um, it does. We really did try with the book, and then I'll shut up about this to just try not to let it dominate the 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 whole thing because really sex is sex and it's like it happens one of a couple ways but it's there's not that many permutations <laughs> of things going into things and stuff so <laughs> you, you get into it, it right, we, right. we totally acknowledge it but for these guys it, that was just the daily stuff and also and I'll kick this to Rich but that's why we a lot of the time talk to other people weren't in the bands. Yeah. Take it. Well, and one of the components I thought was really interesting about this whole dynamic is it does come up a lot. These guys admit, hey, when we were living in dirty warehouses, like that's how we ate. We literally found girls who were in the scene who would support us because they were into the scene, right? And it wasn't necessarily sexual. It was just, hey, if you want to come over, you want to hang out with the band or whatever, bring some food because we're hungry. And there were that, that was a common story that came up quite a bit. It's funny. I think most people were pretty open about that. I think I remember one or two guys I can't remember who it was exactly who sort of dodged the question a little bit because I think they're probably also a little bit, you know, I don't know if I'd say embarrassed by it, but like it, they know that they were taking advantage. I mean, you're taking advantage of someone and then in some ways, in some ways not. I mean, it's, you know, both parties are yeah. willing, but I think on another level, maybe it makes you look like somewhat weak, you know, like you couldn't hack it on your own. You needed these women to help you. But, you know, that that was the reality. And I think even going back to the what Tom was just saying, you know, that's one of the great things about the oral history format too, is like, you don't need to hear these stories filtered through the perspective of, you know, a journalist in 2021, because you're not getting the authentic oh, yeah. story that way. You know, you just need to hear it from them. And, you know, with the story, whatever sexual stories are going on in the book, like you get them from a lot of different perspectives, not just the guys in the band. Sometimes you get them from guys at the label who are just normal nine to fivers, but happen to be like backstage at the show or at the bar at the after party and they witness something. Um, or you get it from like, you know, with Wasp. I mean, we, we go in depth about their stage show, which is just insanity and really like a thing to marvel at. But what is the one part of the stage show that's, you know, sort of, okay, like, this isn't that cool. It's when they have the rack girl on stage where basically they, you know, they strip her topless and pretend to cut her head off, right? Which is not something I don't think would fly nowadays for, you know, for good reason. But instead of just hearing from the guys in the band, you know, Chris Holmes talking about it, and he kind of does a good job of showing how awful and ridiculous it is anyway, maybe unintentionally. Like, we actually talked to one of the girls who was the rack girl. Yeah. And yeah. she confirms, like, yeah, it was awful. And it was super misogynistic. And she didn't really, you know, Blackie always makes it like he's trying to make a larger point. She's like, there's no point to it. Like, it was totally <laughs> done. It was just exploitive. But, like, she was also, like, 18, 19. She was in school at the time. She met Blackie, like, at a club. To, and in her mind, she thought Blackie was, Blackie could have been 80 years old to her. You know, he was just this older, creepy guy. But, you know, opportunity is opportunity, so she did it. But to get that perspective from somebody like that is not the perspective you usually get. And you're like, okay, well, that's what it actually felt like, not just to see it, but to actually be the person doing it. And, like, it didn't feel good. 
you know? And, and so we let the people tell the stories on their own. I mean, and another female perspective would be, that would be the polar opposite would be Sharon Osbourne who talks about, you know, <laughs> being a woman in this world and like being on tour with her husband. And when Motley Crue was on the tour, which was a crazy, you know, yeah. a crazy event, obviously, and all this time. And she's just like, and we asked her about, you know, just being a woman and being in that position. She's just like, you know, she grew up, her father, Don Arden, was is famous in this world as well. And she's like, I grew up about around real gangsters, you know, guys with fucking guns and like who would murder you. You know, she's like, this was nothing. Like these kids, these guys were like children to me, you know. And so she kind of sees it as a whole, you know, there's nothing about it that gets to her at all. And she's like, these kids, this, these guys are like, this is child's play. You know, I can handle this. So you get these different perspectives from, and, you know, of course, for the women, it's like, well, what position of power are they in? And that certainly helps you be able to live in this world. I, I've got a question for you guys. And it's a couple things, too. So I really enjoyed hearing the perspective of when they screened the decline of Western civilization part two, that when people were in the audience and Chris Holmes is in the pool and the mom is next to the pool and he's just pouring the liquor apparently and, and people laughed and it took a couple years for it to get past that where that didn't ever seem funny ever again so i wanted to ask you to dispel this because this rumor kind of started bouncing around was he really drinking vodka in the pool or was he just he just had a vodka bottle full of water and was it a joke because for people that don't know this uh this documentary that was made uh, in the 80s about all the metal bands on the strip. There's this scene, Chris Holmes from Wasp, and he's pouring what looks like vodka like all over his face, down his throat, like in a pool with his mom on the side of the pool. So was he, was that just like phony? Do you know if that was real or not? Because I've never heard definitively whether that was or not. For all, as far as I know, it was real. I mean, and we interviewed Chris for the book as well. He says... You know, he had never said anything otherwise, at least not to us. And Penelope said it was real. And Penelope, because she talks about in the book how also this was not something she was looking for. And I don't even think Chris Holmes was, you know, her first choice to even have in this movie. But, like, there's <laughs> there's talk in the book about how she wanted to get Guns N' Roses. And Alan Niven, the manager, was just like, hell no. Like, I'm not putting Slash in this ridiculous thing. Um, but she winds up with Chris Holmes. And, like, she says... You know, because she's defending herself against charges of like be, of exploitation and all this and sort of preying on this person who clearly has a lot of issues. And she's like, this is not something that I had planned. Um, so it seems like it was real. And because the other thing I'll, I'll say, Penel the only thing Penelope does cop to as being a setup is in the Ozzy Osbourne scene, which mm, she mentions yeah. in the book as well, where, you know, because he's making breakfast and he's frying yeah. bacon and, all, and he's in a robe and it's really ridiculous and like you know and he's sort of like shaking and like doing his whole Aussie thing but the one thing she there's one scene where it's like a close-up on him pouring a glass of orange juice and like the orange juice like it all misses the glass and it's going all over the table and everything she says that was actually a setup that one little sort of close-up so you know I guess the point of that being like she is open about things that were not real in that movie and the Chris Holmes thing, you know, as far as she tells the story, was 100% real. Oh, far out. Okay. 
Thanks for that, Rich. I've always <laughs> wanted to know. And I've never known another human being in my lifetime to really ask this question to. And I knew that I could ask one of you. Behind the partying, these guys are going out when they have records. You know, Rat says they go out and do their first tour after their first record comes out and they do like 300 shows. Um, and they come back millionaires, but it's 300 shows. I mean, yeah. if you've been in a band, even in a, even in a bus... That's insane. But that is how this music, along with MTV, became the currency of this era, is that these guys were out. You know, the British bands could never hack it, which is why so many British bands never broke in America. They're doing primary markets, secondary markets, tertiary markets. They're bam, bam, bam. Like, they're going out and touring every place in America over and over and over again. And, like, at a cost of their really their health and their sanity for a lot of these guys. Um, so, you know, whether it's Louisville or where, any other place, they are out. They play. These guys played every club and arena and shed everywhere. And I and that is how this became. And at that time, that's what was going on. This became the this was the event of 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 the month for kids and all of these, you know, you've sure. seen heavy metal parking lot, but that sure. was real. Um, and so that's really, it just, I always like to bring up and make sure it, it's clear. Like when you look at this book, besides the partying, it's just like the work. Yeah. The amount, you know, the, 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 the amount of de total dedication at, 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 uh, that these guys put in. Tom and I have known each other. We've worked together for, you know, a, quarter of a century um and back in like the late 90s and early 2000s we were at guitar world and and this stuff was still not really anything that you could write about or put in the magazine um you could certainly talk about it all the time and we did and like we got into the sort of minutiae that's in this book because we both grew up the same way you guys did and like the way a lot of people did like there's something i mean everybody has their music that is special to them from that time period in their lives but like there's something about this music I think that is a little different and people who were into it then like a lot of them really don't let it go and that's why when you go see the bands now whether it's in a stadium or like in your local club like there's a lot of people there who are our age and who just never stop listening to this stuff and who never more than that never even stop following it and know what's been going on with the band for the past 30 years you know not just in the 80s and like and it really speaks to like there was something about this music that just really grabbed people at that time um you know it grabbed me well and thankfully and, they're still buying books yeah. about it and listening to podcasts about it uh, for all of yeah. our sakes right <laughs> we're very very glad that they're all the way bought in dudes this was amazing thank you so much for uh spending an, an hour with us to just talk through this stuff and and uh set uh it set to rest some rumors and some innuendo that we've heard about some of our favorite bands from the 80s all right uh, thanks guys thanks rich Thanks so much, Tom. Yep. Hey, and if you want to get involved in the show, the email address is wearethestoryguys at gmail.com. And the website, wearethestoryguys.com, has got all of the projects that we work on, uh, including other podcasts and a whole lot more. So check it out there. And until next time, you know the drill. You got to keep telling stories. 
Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is a Story Guys production. The show is produced and edited by Brian Eichenberger. Get more stories, hear more podcasts and book the guys for your conference or house party at wearethestoryguys.com. Copyright Toy Have We Got Stories Productions. All rights reserved.